Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If things did go south or, or we did start having problems with Qatar, we did start having questions about their, their relationship with Hamas. What would we be able to do? And, and the overwhelming answer is, is nothing. I'm David Knowles, and this is a bonus episode of Battle Lines. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like, every place I go, I go run away, and I just find bombs, and I find dead people. And, like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. People telling me that you know mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. Last week, I caught up with Melissa Lawford. Melissa is the Telegraph's economics reporter, and she's been writing about the economic impact of the war in Israel and Gaza on key regional actors, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. As Saudi Arabia desperately courts investment, Qatar is busy striking LNG deals with states around the world. So what does the war mean for them, and how might their growing economic involvement with the West impact international diplomacy? Here's our conversation. Melissa, we've been talking a little bit about how the conflict between Israel and Hamas is impacting regional players. So we've talked about Turkey, Qatar. You've been writing about Saudi Arabia, specifically about Saudi Arabia's annual future investment initiative. In your article for The Telegraph, you write, chief executives of the world's largest banks and wealthiest investment funds flew into Riyadh for a conference nicknamed Davos in the Desert. This is Saudi Arabia's annual future investment initiative. Melissa, what is the Future Investment Initiative and what are Saudi Arabia's goals in setting it up and running it? Yes, it's felt like a slightly surreal news story because on the one hand, we are seeing all of these horrific images coming out of the Middle East. And then at the same time, 6,000 or so very, very wealthy people have flown into Riyadh for this conference, uh, which is run by Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. We've seen the likes of Goldman Sachs chief David Solomon, the BlackRock founder, Larry Fink, JP Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon. They're all meeting together for this big conference and the theme of the event is New Compass. The program is all about, to quote them, helping investors recalibrate the pathways for their companies and for the global economy. And really what this is about is showcasing Saudi Arabia to investors. 
And I, I mean, just, just to give you an idea of this, I spoke to one person who normally attends and Previously in the past, the event has been free, and this year the tickets were, uh, well, he was being asked to pay 15,000 US dollars. So it gives you an idea of the kind of heft behind this event. It's a conference that was launched in 2017 as part of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's efforts to open up Saudi Arabia to outside investment, part of his $1 trillion Vision 2030 plan to diversify the kingdom away from oil. And on Tuesday, we saw the kingdom launch the NEOM Investment Fund. So NEOM is this $500 billion uh, mega city with this giant mirror wall. Uh, It's incredibly futuristic. Just to be Um, clear, that doesn't exist, does it? It's being built. Mm. It's it's, it's uh, a lot of cranes in in the desert at the moment, and and perhaps we can we can talk on or, you know where, where that's going to go. But while all of this conflict in the Middle East is happening, Saudi Arabia is desperately trying to press ahead with getting money from these international investors to fund its transition away from oil. So let's just, I I think it'd be good just to stay slightly zoomed out. What challenges does Saudi face now and in the future? As you said, this this conference is to sort of solve future problems, to get investment. What are they worried about? What are the things coming down the track for Mohammed bin Salman and for Saudi Arabia? So Mohammed bin Salman's big goal is he wants to diversify Saudi Arabia's economy away from oil. So at the moment, more than half of the government's revenue comes from hydrocarbons. And he knows that that's finite. He can't rely on that forever. We had the International Energy Agency this week say global demand for fossil fuels is going to peak before 2030. And he needs to transition away from oil if he wants to ensure the long-term future for Saudi Arabia. So he's trying to do that Through a few key pillars, he's trying to boost tourism. We've seen Saudi Arabia make massive investments in its soft power and its image and sport. They want to transition away from oil to things like retail. They want to encourage holidaymakers. They're putting so much money into construction. And the the big problem with all of this is, you know, I touched on it earlier, but they really need foreign money to pay for this. And and one of Mohammed bin Salman's big problems, he set this goal as part of Vision 2030 of trying to boost FDI to nearly 6% of GDP. And and he's, he's failing on that account. He's falling short since the start of 2017. It's barely made up a percent of GDP. From April to June this year, foreign investors channeled $1.7 billion into Saudi Arabia, which is a fifth less than they did in the same period in 2015, and that's the equivalent of 0.6% of, of GDP. And, you know, there's a sort of element of tension coming in here because while they are building these enormous projects, they haven't yet significantly transitioned away from oil. You know, oil revenues are still 57% of their public finances. is actually up compared to 2016 when it was 51%. And without boosting foreign direct investment, in a way, Saudi Arabia is becoming more dependent on oil revenues because it has to use that oil money to fund these building projects, which is how it's going to transition 
away. And for now, that's fine because, you know, we've seen the oil price go quite high. But nobody thinks the oil price is going to permanently stay high. And if in a few years it drops below, say, $60 a barrel, it's going to have some pretty big problems. All right. So we've talked a bit about the challenges Saudi Arabia faces, how it's been trying to go around rectifying this and solving those problems. Let's bring this back to the conflicts in Israel and Gaza. How how does it play into all this? Does it really threaten to undermine Mohammed bin Salman's vision for his country? And how so? Could you talk us through your thoughts here? I think the, the big thing that any country wants to do, if you want to persuade the likes of Larry Fink to invest in your country, is that you need to show that it is stable, that you can give investors a degree of certainty, that your legal system will protect them, and that there is regional stability. What the conflict does in the first instance is it it doesn't matter, you know, all of the economic promises and all of your vision you can make if there is a war next door that is a major risk to investment. We've we've got a lot of speculation at the moment about whether Iran will become embroiled. And if Iran becomes embroiled, does Saudi Arabia then become embroiled? And and, and obviously these these things are this is all speculation, but um I, I think it's fair to say, you know, when people are deciding whether or not to invest their money, they have to speculate about what might happen. And there are a few key risks even beyond, you know, whether or not Saudi Arabia faces direct problems. For example, if you just look at the geography of the region, if Iran becomes involved, that then raises a huge question over what happens in the Strait of Hormuz, which um, is this very narrow shipping waterway which passes right by Iran. And that's where the Gulf's oil gets exported out. In the past, we've seen Iran target Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure. So, so there's, there's a sort of risk in terms of stability and what that does to investment decisions. There's a risk in terms of, I think it's unlikely, but it is, it is simmering there of, you know, Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure. And then, you know, there's another very obvious one. If Saudi Arabia is trying to court tourism right now and you're thinking of planning a holiday, I can guarantee that you're just not going to be thinking about traveling to the Middle East in quite the same way right now. And then, and then we've also seen things like before all of this began, Saudi Arabia was on the brink of signing a security deal with the US, which was contingent on Saudi Arabia recognizing Israeli sovereignty. And and that is now on ice. So there's a whole kind of confluence of problems that this conflict raises for Saudi Arabia and its diversification goals. Turning away from Saudi Arabia for a moment then, what about Qatar? You've been writing about these liquid natural gas deals between European nations and Qatar. What's happening? What's been agreed? And why are, why are European countries going to Qatari gas? Yes, there has been a huge flurry of mega deals in the last two weeks. We've seen 
Qatar announced literally in the space of two weeks, there have been three massive deals, one between Qatar Energies, which is Qatar's state-owned energy company. Qatar Energies has signed deals with Shell to supply a very long-term deal to supply liquefied natural gas to the Netherlands. They've signed a deal with Total Energies to supply France with liquefied natural gas, and they've now signed one with any to supply Italy with liquefied natural gas. These contracts are 26, 27 years long. We're talking about millions of tons of LNG a year. Follows one that they signed to supply Germany. And these deals, to to be clear, they're deals with companies, but they, they have these destination clauses in to supply these countries. So there was one to supply Germany that was signed at the end of last year. And you know, I mean, I think the one with France is 3.5 million tonnes of LNG a year, which is equivalent to 14% of what France used last year. And, and to put that in context, that had more than doubled compared to the previous year because obviously Europe imported a huge amount of gas from Russia. And basically there, there was sort of, I don't know how much you want to get into the logistics of this, but the cheapest way to import gas is through a natural gas pipeline. That That's, that's quite straightforward and easy. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to process the gas. Europe is trying to wean itself off Russian gas. I don't think it actually has sanctions on Russian gas, but obviously it's trying to cut that down. And so Russian gas imports plunged, I think, by about 80%. And and so to fill that gap, Europe has had to turn further afield. And when you turn further afield, you have to turn to liquefied natural gas, which is this more transportable form of gas, which is more expensive because it's been processed to make it transportable. And and so there are basically, of the, of the four major gas suppliers in the world, you've got the US, which is just the largest, you've got Qatar, you've got Australia, and each of them supply about around a fifth of the world's LNG, and then you've got Russia. So Russia's obviously off the cards. Australia is too far away to be useful, and that leaves you with the US and Qatar. We massively increased our, our imports from the US, but these long-term deals show that Europe is now is now turning to Qatar to fill that hole left by Russia and in our attempts to shore up our energy security. As you've hinted at, and as you've talked about on the Ukraine The Latest podcast, Russian energy was problematic, is problematic for European countries. Qatar comes, however, with its own diplomatic issues. Can you talk us through them? I mean, you know, there's always been a question mark over human rights, over ethics in, in Qatar. And I think, you know, everyone's fairly conscious of, of them, but in, in the context of the conflict in the Middle East right now, it's very interesting because Qatar is emerging as a diplomatic power broker. We saw it after Afghanistan. You, you know, Qatar opened a Taliban office in 2013. It was pretty instrumental in, in helping the evacuations out of Afghanistan that we saw two years ago. It's It's got links with Hamas. The Hamas leader has an office in Doha. And, and I mean, this works both ways. You know, we've also seen Qatar was, was pretty instrumental in the deal we saw over the summer between the US and Iran. You know, when, when we saw that prisoner release and, and the US released $6 billion in Iranian funds. Qatar has also been instrumental in, in the hostage releases that we've seen. But but it's it's able to be that pivotal because it is it is engaging with both sides and 
that is that is politically tricky, to say the least. Well, let's tie all this together then, talking about Qatar. Melissa, one really fascinating point you make is this, again, quoting from your article. Analysts warned that Europe's growing reliance on gas means it would struggle to take a moral stance against Qatar if there was to be any pressure for sanctions on gas exports. Why? I mean, th- this is just overwhelmingly speaking to analysts. And if you say, well, if if things did go south or, or we did start having problems with Qatar, or we did start having questions about their, their relationship with Hamas, what would we be able to do? And and the overwhelming answer is is nothing. <laughs> it would be impossible for Europe to not be getting those LNG imports because the market is so tight right now because of the war in Ukraine, because of everything that's happened with Russia. Europe really needs these, these LNG imports. And um, we've seen how devastating the gas market can be for the cost of living for, for all of our economies. We don't have much wiggle room. We, we no longer have much space to take uh, a moral stance. And that is not a nice position to be in. Melissa Lawford, thank you very much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells. <laughs>